Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia. As of August 2nd, we have resumed in-person worship services on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. We are committed to the health and safety of our families and will continue to offer our simultaneous live stream at youtube.com slash area 10 faith community. We hope you'll join us at the Bird Theater again soon, but in the meantime, we're providing the best possible online experience we can for you. Now, on to this week's message. One of my favorite children's books that we uh, used to look at with our, with our kids uh, are the Where's Waldo books. You've probably, you've probably seen those. So they, Where's Waldo, if you're unfamiliar with it, Waldo's little dude. And, and they have these really like crazily illustrated pictures with all these things going on, all these different characters, and you have to figure out where is Waldo. So it's a, kind of a big hide-and-seek kind of thing of where, where is he in, in all of this. Um, what I did find out is that for 2020, they've released a, a, a new version. It's the social, social distancing edition. Um, a little easier. They keep the six-feet rule in place. And, oh, there he is. No one's wearing a mask, which is concerning. But, um, but, there, but there he is. So that, that's cool that they've got that. Um, but the thing about that is that uh, Waldo, no matter how crazy the pictures are and how busy they are, Waldo's always there. He's in every, every picture. That's the way the book works. Um, you just maybe didn't notice him. And it's, and it's the kind of thing that once you see Waldo on the page, you kind of know where he is and you can't like unsee him, right? And, and then you sort of like you kind of zoom into him or zone in on him and you're like, how did I not see him before? How did I look at this page for five minutes and I still couldn't see him? And I, well, he's, he's always there. And I was thinking about that because I was thinking of, this, of an idea that I want to I kind of finish out this series with. And it's an idea that has actually been there all along. It's an idea that's been in Christianity and, and been in our faith and in our roots and our heritage for all, all along, for millennia. Um, and it's an idea that we often overlook. We're finishing up this series called Keeping It 100, and we're talking about what does it look like to have a real relationship with the real God. And so we've talked about you know, mankind's sinfulness, and we've talked about entering into a covenant relationship with God and the new covenant that he established with us and what that looks like. And we've gone gone through the ideas of God choosing us and what does that look like and what is our response to that. Um, and we've talked about how secure are we in that and we looked at some of the issues around that. And, and to kind of finish it all off, I want to end with this, this idea that is the overlooked one. It's, it's there. It always has been there, but we, we don't always notice it. And this really is the unique contribution of Christianity to the world. It's this powerful idea of grace. The idea that, that, that God has given us something that we didn't necessarily deserve. And it's a, it's a powerful concept. Richard Niebuhr uh, says this. He said, the great Christian revolutions come not by the discovery of something that was not known before. They come when someone takes, somebody takes radically something that was already there. So there's not, there's not this like, oh, wow, I, I, I never knew this is a new insight. No, that's not, that's not where the growth in our faith comes from. The growth in our faith will come when there's something that's always been there, and then we start to actually take it seriously and radically and go, okay, this really is a big deal. And so I want to look at the concept of grace. It's all over the scriptures, but I want to focus mostly in Romans. We were in Romans in the last couple of weeks, Paul's letter to the church in Rome, and uh, I want to look at kind of how he, he opens the letter and then, and then go into how he kind of unpacks the concept of grace um, that, that shows up throughout, throughout the book. So let me just find it here. Um, and I, I, I just want to start with the very beginning of the letter to the church at Rome that Paul wrote. Listen, to, this is how the book starts. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, 
which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. That's one sentence. He would have been terrible at Twitter. Terrible. Couldn't fit it in the characters. It's just like, whoa, lots of like clauses and dependent and like I would I would hate to have to like grammar break that down, right? So that so he 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 opens his letters um, with a, with an explanation as as you would do in the ancient world. This is who I am, um, and and he gives a lot of caveats around that. I've been called by God. This is what is going on, and, and I'm writing to you. And then he says this in verse 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says grace and peace. Paul wrote 13 letters in the New Testament. Guess how many he starts with the words grace and peace? 13. So this is the way he would open letters. And if you, and if you know anything about the Greek language or you, you see what he's doing here, it's a little unusual. A, a standard greeting in the ancient world is greetings, to say greetings, which in Greek is the word karen. And, and he uses, instead he uses the word grace, which is the Greek word charis. So it sounds very similar. So the original audience would have heard this and, they, and they're like, yeah, 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 welcome, blah, 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 that's how you start a letter. And then they're supposed to say greetings. And instead he says grace and peace to you. And they go, oh, he didn't say karen, he said charis. That's a, little, that's a little bit different. So he leads with this thing that's like, oh, he's talking about grace. And then he says grace and peace. The, the Greek word for peace is irene. And, and, and what you need to understand about Paul is that all he's, he's writing in the Roman world and he's writing in Greek. He thinks Jewish. He's a Jewish guy. This is his roots, his heritage, his peace his background. So when he brings the word peace into the conversation, he's adding in a Jewish thought that there, the Old Testament word for that would be shalom. This idea of, of not just peace as in an absence of conflict, but, but overall goodness and harmony of humanity that the Savior is going to bring. So he's, he, like the Jews before him, have been waiting for a Savior to come, for this Messiah to come. When, and when that Messiah comes, when the Savior comes, he's going to bring peace on earth, goodwill towards men. We will talk about that more maybe next month. Um, but he's going to bring this peace to the earth. And so Paul's greeting brings together uh, maybe a, a Greek idea, uh, this Greek thought of grace, and then this, this, uh, this, this Jewish idea of peace and brings these together. And this is how he opens his letters. The word grace actually shows up a lot in the Scriptures, over a over hundred times. Um, and it is really a central theme of, of the New Testament. Now think about how the word grace shows up in our culture today. It actually shows up in a lot of places that you don't realize because the, the word grace is also the root, root of that is grat, which you, from which we get a lot of other words, G-R-A-T. Think about where G-R-A-T shows up in the middle of a word. So we have grace. We might, we might say grace before dinner. Okay, we're saying grace. If someone is a, a great dancer, we would say they're graceful. If someone overlooks an insult or they, they do something really nice for you, we might say they are gracious. Um, but, but if someone uh, is to be 
if you want to thank someone for doing something, uh, you might say, or you might say they're doing something great, you say congratulations. There's that word in there. We show our gratitude. Um, when someone goes above and beyond for service, we might tip them with some gratuity. Um, you hear it in other languages, grazie, right? You, it, it, that, that word kind of shows up all all over the place. In, in music, when you, when you write a piece of music, if you ever had to play a sort of a solo instrument or whatever, and, and you, you read this line of music, sometimes they will include two tiny little notes or three little notes uh, on the line that you can play them or not play them, but if you play them, they just add a little fun to the music. Those are called grace notes. If you sign a contract and you need a period to decide if you want to actually back out of the contract, that's called your grace period. Like, this stuff shows up all over the place, and usually what it is communicating when, when that root of grace shows up in our language, what it's communicating is some idea of, here's something a little extra. Here's something you didn't necessarily deserve, but you're going to get just for fun or just for extra or just because we love you or, or something. It, 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 it implies this, this extra piece that comes in. Um, uh, one writer says it this way, grace is the free, spontaneous, unmerited favor of God. At its roots, now we've got other usages of it today, right? But at its roots, grace is the free, spontaneous, unmerited favor of God. It's free to us. You didn't have to buy God's, God's favor towards you. But it cost God something. He died on the cross. There was, there was sacrifice there so that we could be in right relationship with God. But the, the, there's this free grace to us and it's unmerited. There's no point where God looks at you and is like, uh, and is like, you've done so many good things. Now I'm going to offer my love and sacrifice for you. Now I'm going to offer my grace towards you. That's not the way it works. Um, there's nothing in us that makes God loves, love us more or, or, or love us less or anything like that. Um, the, the, the source of grace, this unmerited favor and, and love from God, uh, it comes from him. Uh, it, it, he is the, the root of that. Now, how comfortable are you with the idea that you get something unmerited? Like, who doesn't like a random check in the mail? You know? Like, oh, I didn't know I was getting a refund on this thing. I got, we got one during, during COVID. My car insurance sent me a check. They're like, hey, less people are driving. There's less accidents. Here's some money back. I, I'm, I was stunned. I don't know. I, I, did your car? I don't know. I was like, oh, thank you. That's, wow. So, so, so yeah. I, but even with that, I could be like, well, I didn't drive, so I've earned this check. I haven't been driving. I've quarantined. So, you know, I've earned it. The idea that something is unmerited, I think for a lot of us in this culture, that's it's kind of uncomfortably. We like the idea that we get what we deserve. We live in a meritocracy. The idea from very little is you do well, you get an A. You're going to get a good grade if you do the work, if you work hard. We don't like the idea that they're just handing out A's to every rando kid. You got to do the work, son. I did that project and carried you. I get the A or whatever, right? We don't, we don't like the unmerited thing. Doesn't seem right. Or, or in work, in the working world, beyond grades, hey, I get the promotion because I worked so hard this year. Therefore, I get to step up. We love that. We think and we believe that basically that's the, the way the world works. I earn these things. I have met the standard. Therefore, I am going to get the results. So the idea of unmerited favor from our creator, that it seems a little off. It's like, wait, are you saying I, I don't have to earn it? Um, I, don't ha I don't 
deserve it. Like, I don't, I don't get that. We think the universe sort of operates under what is essentially a Hindu concept of karma, that uh, you do good things and you earn sort of good favor from doing the good things, or if you do bad things, you're going to earn bad, and it's going to come back, and so it's going to come back around for you. Do enough good, and good will be come back to you. You do enough bad, bad comes back to you. That kind of idea. That's kind of how we think the universe works, even though it's not a Christian idea at all. It's actually a Hindu idea. And along comes grace, and it says, hey, you have unmerited favor, and God sort of breaks the rules with this, or what we think are, are the rules. So Paul expands on this. I want to I look at it in Romans 5, um, beyond the introduction. There's, there's lots of spots, of course, we could go to. But in Romans 5, I want you to look at uh, where he brings grace in again and, and kind of its connection. And, and we'll look at sort of what it allows us to do now and, and even and tie that into maybe how people are feeling even this week. So Romans 5, let's look at uh, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we, get this, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. All right, he starts out by saying, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we stand in right relationship with God. It's really by grace through faith is what, that God's grace has been given to us. His love, his unmerited favor has been poured out to us, and we we had faith in him, which we've said before is, is not just belief, but is loyalty, fidelity, commitment. God, God makes a move towards us and we respond. And because of that, we now stand in this place, um, uh, this relationship with God. Jesus' his death, Paul lets us know that Jesus' death has brought us close to God. And we receive that unmerited favor of God when we are baptized into Christ. We give our lives to him, we respond to him in baptism and that un unmerited favor, that grace, uh, that relationship with God is, is applied to us. Let me, let me read to you again verse 3. Listen to what it says. Um, into this grace, uh, into this, uh, not, not, it says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces, produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Okay, there's a couple ideas. This is, this is number one that I want us to get. Number one is this. Grace allows us to roll with the losses. Paul, in the midst of this talk about being justified by faith and grace and all of that, he points to suffering. And he says, because of God's grace, we're in relationship with God. And, and because of that, our relationship to even our suffering has changed. Not just to the things where we're winning, but to the, to the ways where we're losing. Suffering, our relationship to that has changed. Because suffering, as you all know, right, and, and you either have experienced this personally or you know people like this, suffering can make you bitter. Suffering can make you hard and angry and, and, and just, just really bitter about the world. And, and a lot of people go through that, and that's kind of where they, where they end up. And things did not work out, and they, and they grow bitter, and you've experienced that. You can, it can wreck you. And Paul says, or the suffering in you can produce something in you. It produces endurance. It produces character, he says. And that leads to hope. 
This is an important idea. It's important for us to recognize that our sense of hope is not actually granted to us by a politician or a government or a system. That's not how it works. It's not, oh, my guy wins, now I have hope. My guy didn't win, now I have no hope. Or my, you know, it's, that's not the way uh, true hope actually works. And, and, and if we are looking for our hope to come from something like that on the outside, we need to look inside and go, what's going on in me? Paul says, actually, hope would come from suffering that produces endurance, which produces character, which leads to hope. There's something going on there that God is doing something in you that will, that will bring about hope in your life. And it's not something that comes to you from the outside through politicians or, or laws or anything like that. Um, I see this in the older generation who have been through suffering. I, I, I feel blessed to know people older than me, like my entire life, like having mentors, people who have poured into me who are 10, 20, 40, 50 years older than me. And when you talk to people who are older who have been through some stuff, you know, doesn't it kind of change the perspective on the stuff you're going through right now? Like people who have just been beat up in the world. You know, when you talk to people and you're like, oh, we're in a pandemic, and they're like, yeah, I've done one of those before. It was all right, you know, like I got the T-shirt, you know, whatever. They're like, oh, but we're going to go to war. Yep, I lived through a couple wars. It's fine. Oh, the economy, the stock market crashed. Yep, I've seen that about eight times in my lifetime. Like, there's something about the perspective of people who have lived through it. And when someone who's gone through the ringer looks at you and they've been through the pandemics and the wars and the, and, and the cancer and disease and, and frustration and pain are all around them and suffering, when they've been through all of that and they look you in the eye and they go, God's got this and it's going to be okay, you believe them. If a 14-year-old who's never experienced anything looks you in the eye and says, God's got this and it's going to be okay, you're like, that's cute, but you don't know anything about anything. But when someone who's been through it and lived it, why? Because we know this is true. The suffering has produced endurance, which produces character, which produces a real hope. There's, some, there's something substantive there. And you go, man, I, 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 wanna, I want what you have because it's real. This is what Paul is talking about, that the, the blows that come, the, the, the setbacks, the losses, the pain, it produces something great in, in, in your life. Of, of all the people in the world, right now and, and always, Christians should be the people who go, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay because I, I signed up for a life that's not about my life. I signed up for a life where it doesn't all have to work out the way I want it to. I signed up to make him famous to be about God's mission and his purpose in the world. And so if my hopes and, and plans and strategies didn't all work out the way I want, it, it doesn't have to. That's okay. I want you to track with this. God's unmerited favor towards you, his grace towards you should change your heart and that, and that should change the way you relate to wins and losses and outcomes. It should change your one-year plan, your five-year plan, and your thousand-year plan. It should allow you to face the setbacks in a different way. I, I've said this before. I will say it again. I will say it till we've all memorized it. Um, I, I, I really believe this. God, does, God never promises through his grace, the grace of God, he, he never promises to take your suffering away. He just promises to make your suffering count to count for something, that he's got a plan here. 
So number one, God's grace allows us to roll with the losses. Number two is this. Let me read Romans 5 again. For while we were still weak, he says, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And here's the second thing. The grace of God covers our sins. Paul puts it in these terms. While we were weak, Christ dies for us. And even gives us an example of like, look, you might take a bullet for somebody you love. You're a parent, you might die for your children. You might lay down your life for them. You might die for the person you love that you're married to or your girlfriend or whatever. Like you may give up your life for someone that you really care about. If, if it's not someone you love but someone you kind of like, you might die for them too. But what if it's someone you don't like? Would you take a bullet for your betrayer, for your ex, for someone you know, that's burned it down with you in the past? I don't know about that. And Paul says, no, that is what God has done. That's what God's done for us. While we were still sinners, while we didn't give a rip about God, while we were like, I'm doing my own thing and I'm going to live my own life and I don't care about my Heavenly Father and I don't want to be in a relationship and I don't want to make any of that right and I'm just going to live all about me all the time. While we were living that life, God sends His Son to die for us. That's powerful. It's powerful because here's, here's what it means. God is not sitting back waiting for you to clean yourself up first before He will initiate a relationship with you. You're over there a mess and it's not going well and you're like ugly crying and your makeup's running down your face and you're sitting there in like your own vomit and God looks at you, he sees you and he goes, I love you and I'm gonna die for you anyway. I'm not gonna wait till you clean all that up. I'm gonna initiate. This is the grace of God and it's a, it's a beautiful thing. Now, we typically have one of two reactions to that. The grace of God, this unmerited favor that the grace covers over our sins. We typically have one or two reactions. One is this. We say, I'm so bad, this can't be true, and I don't deserve this. Chris, grace of God may be fine, and you may say God loves me, and he's going to die for me, and all that. That sounds cool and all, but the, you don't know how bad I am. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I'm addicted to, pouring alcohol, drugs, a, a approval, greed. Like, I got stuff, Chris. I got a long list of stuff, and it won't go away. And therefore, God, this can't be the way the system works. God can't initiate to me and love me. I'm, I'm messed up. And I get that. It's called shame. Something we, we, we carry around with us. We're, we, we're, we're drowning in it. And so we go, I, you know what? I'm uncomfortable with this whole idea. I'm so bad, I just don't deserve the love of God. Or you're a rule follower, and you go, there are rules. I know I've broken them. Therefore, I don't deserve any reward. So that's one reaction we have is, is I'm so bad, I don't deserve this. And then the second reaction that we have is, I'm so good, I don't need this. I don't need God's love. I'm actually a pretty good person. Or another version of that that we sometimes believe is, I'm so good, I've actually earned God's love. Like, as he's picking all the people in the world, of course he would pick me because I'm pretty great. Now, when I say that out loud, that sounds like arrogant to the point where most of us would be like, I mean, that's weird. I, don't, I wouldn't say that. I mean, I'm, I'm all right, you know, but... But, but consider like the, the, the high sort of self-esteem culture we live in where we're like, you know, you're special and 
you're amazing and don't let anyone tell you that you're not amazing. Like that kind of vibe that we sort of get in our culture, that kind of the attitude of, of, of where we live. Um, and you can see how we can kind of fall into this pattern of like, uh, I, I'm loved and, 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 and I'm kind of great and therefore I'm, I'm probably good with God. Like he probably thinks I'm pretty great too. And, and, we, and we're not going to do it in an arrogant way, but we'll just say things like, oh, but I'm a nice person. I'm like, I'm, I'm a good person. And then we will point to people who are not nice or good, and we, we're like on the curve here, and we're like, well, those people are not nice and good. I'm slightly better than that. So we just feel like we've, we deserve whatever good stuff God's going to send our way because we're basically good people. And I understand that, but I think that whole line of thinking is a trap. I don't want you to drown in shame. I've had to do work on my own shame as well. I don't want any of us to drown in shame um, and, I, and I don't want you to hate yourself, but I think to understand the grace of God, you have to rightly understand the situation that we're in. And maybe the cleanest way I can say it is this, you are worse than you think, and you are more loved than you could ever believe. You're worse than you think, but more loved than you would ever believe. It's, it's a powerful thing that God looks at us and sees us in the mess and loves us anyway powerfully and, and, and profoundly. Um, Paul, Paul says, as he, as he, in Philippians 3, Paul talks about his own life, and he's, he starts talking about all his accomplishments. So I've done this, and I've done this, and here's what a big deal I was. And at the end of all of that, he says, my, all of my righteousness was filthy rags. None of it was worth anything. I'm, I'm not a big deal, is the way Paul, Paul says that. And, and I think we need to understand that all your trophies and achievements and accomplishments, that's not the stuff that matters to God. Um, you, can, you can win at life. You can go through and win at America, and you might end up missing the most important relationship in the world, your relationship with your Heavenly Father. That's the stuff that matters. So grace shows up, covers over our sins, and put things right. God loves you in spite of your sins. And then finally this, number three, grace is an invitation to a way of life. In another letter Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, he says this in Ephesians chapter 2. This is pretty famous. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. We looked at it actually back in June, July. Uh, Ephesians 2 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. There's grace again, right? And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that one, no one may boast. It's not like you just did a bunch of cool things and now God loves you. That's not it. For we are his workmanship, but catch, catch this, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So it's not that you did a bunch of good things, now God loves you, because that's merited favor, right? The unmerited favor still, it sources from God, his grace flows to you, but he has things for you to do. There's mission, there's purpose, there's, there's stuff that God's like, hey, uh, I've saved you, not so you can just be all awesome by yourself, or whatever, but that you can reach others, that you can love others, that you can extend grace to others. And this is important because, listen, no matter what job you have, no matter how you spend your days uh, in, in, in culture right now, what you're, you're working, you're at school, you're raising kids, you're retired, and like, no matter what you have going, um, you, you have a mission and purpose. We talked about this in the last couple of weeks. You have, a, you have a direction from God, and, and you need to be a, a conduit of his grace, that you, that you would show the grace that has been given to you, the love of God that's been given to you, you would show that to others and extend it. And I think 
That is exactly what the world needs now. In an election cycle, somebody always wins. Somebody always loses. Sometimes it takes a while to figure out which is which. But it always goes that way. And this isn't the time to lose and then go plot revenge. It's the time to be gracious in winning and, and, and grace, gracious in losing. This is needed in history. History is filled with tribes and nations and cultures where you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back. You came in and attacked my family, I'm going to come back and attack your family plus one. Oh, now you've attacked that many people, we're coming back, we're going to burn your whole village down. Like back and forth, this goes. This is the cycle of ungrace that you see over and over and over in the world. And Jesus steps into that and says, enough. Turn the other cheek, Jesus says. If someone wants to slap you on the side of the face, give them the other one to slap as well. Not so that you're a doormat, but because unless you show grace, this cycle never ends and it goes horrible for everybody. This is the opportunity that we have to show grace and change the cycle and the, and the, and the flow of, of the world. This is the kind of attitude that changed the Roman Empire. That, that took you know, a, a Roman pagan world, which was, was very harsh, and in the midst of that, Christians took insult and persecution and ridicule, and they went out and started hospitals. And, and historically, like hospitals, they, they, they built stronger marriages. They elevated the role of women higher than it was in the Roman culture. They, they built up schools and universities. Like Christians for millennia have been, have been showing grace in a world of ungrace. It's a powerful thing when the people of God step up um, with grace and it changes things. And I think we need that now. We don't need more political wins. We need kingdom of God people doing kingdom things and showing grace. It's amazing when that happens. Uh, some years back, probably a dozen years or so ago, I was, uh, I was cutting grass outside. and It was a hot day. I remember this. A hot day. And I was cutting the grass of somebody, a friend, it wasn't my house, and I was in, the back, in their backyard, and I was doing this push mower, and I remember it was really hot. And um, I, 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 I was sweating a lot, and so I stopped the mower to just kind of cool off for a second and, and wipe myself off. And when I stopped the mower to wipe myself off, I heard bagpipes. And I don't know if you've experienced this, but if you hear bagpipes like out in the wild, it's a little disconcerting because the bagpipes were playing Amazing Grace. And my first thought was, oh no, I just died. <laughs> there was a terrible accident with the lawnmower, and I'm now dead because it's weird. You're just like, lawnmower stopping, it's like, Amazing Grace, bagpipes, oh no, oh, this is gone. You know, it was like, took me a minute. I mean, I was sweaty and probably a little heat deprived or, whatever, or heat stroke or whatever, but I was like, Okay, I'm, I'm still here. This is okay. And I listened to it. Someone was, you know, practicing it or whatever. Um, there's just something powerful about that song. We sang it this morning. Uh, it's the kind of thing that gets sung by, you know, politicians on the steps of the Capitol after 9-11 or, or, or the president or, or just people, like people all over society know that song and they sing it. But but the people of God can sing it, and, and we should be the ones who know what it means. Amazing grace, 
How sweet the sound. Is that sound sweet to you? Is it actually sweet when we talk about it? Do you get that? It saved a wretch like me. Do you understand your wretchedness? Do you understand that you're kind of a mess and that God showed his grace anyway? I once was lost. Have you been lost? You experienced that, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see that this world where the, the, I was walking, stumbling around in darkness, and, and suddenly the light bulb comes on. That's what that song's about. And that, those words, those change, so many lives have changed because of not just the song, but like the message that it's bringing across. So I just want to close with us singing it again. It's really simple. Um, and I, I, I pray as we sing this that you, you think about those words and think about the God of grace that's behind those words. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. God, may those be more than just lyrics to a song from a generation gone by. May those be words that are written on our hearts and words to live by, words to own, to, to internalize, um, words that will, that, that after we internalize them, they, they, they come out of us. We be the people that are merchants of grace, that are dispensers of grace. Um, God, may, may we be characterized as that in, in wins and in losses, in, in good times and in bad, in, in suffering and hardship or in, or in uh, the thrill of victory. In, in all of those spaces, Lord, may we be the people of grace. It is what our hearts need, um, what our souls need, what our friendships need, what our relationships need. It is what the world so badly needs. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.